News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, today is going to be a very interesting day for the Federal Conservative Party. We know that leader Aaron O'Toole is pretty much fighting for his political life and his leadership at this point. And today is the day that members of the Conservative Party caucus will be voting secretly by secret ballot, but whether or not they want him to stay on as leader. Now, for more on all of these developments, we're joined now by Tasha Carradine, who's the National Post columnist and been writing about this. Good morning, Tasha. Good morning. What do you think is going to happen here? Can he stay? Yeah. Well, what I can, what I'm hearing is from two different camps with two different things. Um, Mr. O'Toole's camp thinks they have uh, enough votes to keep him around, uh, about 70 votes that they think they need. Um, the other side says the same thing. So you can you can guess it would go both ways. Um, I'm tending to think uh, that there is going to be that he's going to lose the vote, um, partly because his threshold that the threshold people are talking about is higher than simply 50 percent plus one which is what the other side needs you remember joe clark in 1979 got i think it was 67 percent. so if he doesn't get that level of support some people are saying he should leave it's been so vocal though hasn't it especially the last 48 hours you're hearing lots of mps say no this is time for a change and that doesn't seem like something he can overcome like even if he barely scrapes in how can he continue on well, this is what I, I was writing about, because I think that at a certain point, unfortunately, your leadership ability gets gets tarnished beyond repair. Um, you know, I find it distressing because I think that the path he had suggested that, uh, you know, the party become more inclusive, what he was trying to do during the election unsuccessfully, is the path that the party should go down. Um, dumping your leader opens it, the field to the conversation, which can be healthy. It, it, it is healthy to, to understand what the conservative party is about. But after this weekend, it also risks uh, veering into territory that I think no conservatives would really want. Um, You know, that the protest had a lot of well-meaning people at it. It had some very not well-meaning people at it, too. And no one called them out on the spot. Uh, You know, it was more like the conservatives just supported the whole thing. So it is it is a difficult it's a difficult place for the party to be and a difficult place for Mr. O'Toole. I agree with you. I, I don't personally think he can really salvage this one. So what was it that went wrong for him? You talked about the path that the party went down. They they were having some success during the election, kind of middle, middle of the campaign in going that route, but something went wrong. Is it because he didn't talk about it before he did this? It became as a surprise to members of the Conservative Party? Well, the problem was he ran for the leadership on a very right of center and also some people said socially right of center, uh, true blue platform. He then pivoted for the campaign to say we want to be more inclusive. Um, he uh, distressed uh, some people after the campaign, apparently with the the demand or the, that the whole caucus support um, the anti-conversion therapy bill, for example. Uh, he's made some decisions that flew in the face of what people thought they were getting or some parts of the party thought they were getting with him. And he also flip-flopped. This is the other, I think this is the biggest piece, to be honest with you, is that he's changed positions on issues quite frequently. Um, The issue of of, uh, gun control or firearms during the election was one example. Um, The issue uh, most recently, in fact, even about the protests, uh, you know, he, at the one hand, said that he met with people and it was, he showed some photos of him meeting people and good people, et cetera. And then that evening he slammed um, the the elements that were unsavory elements in the crowd, but it was kind of too little too late. It's this veering back and forth. And even now, 
he said that he may change the party's policies if they keep him around. So it's it's a frustration with his style of leadership as much as the content, I think. Yeah, so what are you, like, why did it come to a boiling point now? What are you hearing? Um, what I heard is really it was this, uh, the rally or the protests on the weekend that were sort of a tipping point um, for this conversation. It's been happening consistently since the election, if you recall, um, you know, with Denise Batters, uh, and he basically excommunicating her out of the Senate caucus, but her regional caucus in Saskatchewan of MPs still embraced her. So he tried to assert himself within caucus, and it is not working the way he needs it to work. So what I'm hearing is there's a level of frustration. Even MPs who support him feel that, you know, who support his direction. This is the thing. It's this battle for the soul of the party that's happening. They support the direction, but they don't think he's necessarily the one to carry it forward. So even they are torn by what to do, because to your point, how can he assert his authority? It's unfortunate. How do you assert your authority for something that you believe in if people don't believe you actually believe it? Okay, if not him, then who? Well, that is the big question. Um, there are a number of people within caucus uh, who are out there and saying that, you know, they uh, could, you know, uh, not they are saying it, but people are saying they could lead the party in a different direction. The, on the weekend, the opponents, uh, the, the organizers of the protest actually said, we'd like to see Pierre Polver, Leslie Lewis, um, who were very vocal during the, uh, the protest. Yeah. Um, and so they are two, two members of caucus. A lot of people are talking about people are talking about Michelle Rempel Garner. Hmm. People are talking about Michael Chong. People are talking about other people in caucus who have different views on the spectrum who would be potentially a leadership right. candidate should the leadership happen. So there's a lot of talent out there. Um, it's just you know, some, some people embrace different ideas than others. Oh, boy. Well, this is going to be an interesting day in Ottawa. Tasha, thank you so much for it your will. time. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Tasha Carradine, National Post columnist. This is Mornings with Simi. Five days and counting since the convoy of truckers and protesters uh, showed up in Ottawa. Now, Ottawa police say the crowd is starting to thin out, but let's find out how everything is going in the nation's capital. Joining us now is David Aiken, our Global National Chief Political Correspondent. Hi, David. Hey, how's it going, Simi? I'm all right. How are things in Ottawa? Well, it uh, the headline I'm using this morning is uh, Truckers Toot. Tories tussle like we got a lot going on this morning um the the truckers uh the the protest convoy really is still here uh, but you're right much reduced police last night put a press release out saying it's down to 250 people that's right 250 of which only 50 are actually on the hill the others are presumably in their vehicles uh sort of in various blocks around the hill um our colleague abigail beam and uh i'm in the bureau right now she's just walking around uh the parliamentary precinct right now and she figures it's a little more than that, that there are probably about 250 vehicles themselves in terms of trucks and cars, and then you have some more people. But anyway, it's not. As organizers said in a press release this morning, tens of thousands of people here. That's what the organizers said in a press release they put out this morning. There are not tens of thousands of people here. It is in the hundreds and uh, might be more than 250. Last night we had two arrests made, Ottawa police arresting two men, both from Ottawa, one on a mischief charge, don't really have much details on that, one on a weapons charge. Someone brought a gun to a public meeting. Uh, that apparently is not allowed. Thirteen other investigations are underway at this point in time, and um, and we'll see. And I can tell you that you know people in Ottawa, particularly those who live downtown, mm-hmm. uh, there is a great pressure on police to do something, to do something now. 
mostly because of the noise that is being generated by these these protesters. They're on their air horns on their trucks uh, pretty much from dawn till midnight, and it's impossible for many downtown residents to sleep these last four or five days. Um, they've been putting fireworks. The pro- protesters have been lighting fireworks at night. Um, there have been lots of reports of threatening behavior to area residents who are, are still wearing masks. And, you know, you can walk down a street with protesters wearing a mask and you can get verbally assaulted just for wearing a mask. Take it off. They'll yell at you and maybe use other more colorful language. Oh, so, boy. So as okay. I say, the local residents are saying enough's enough. Um, they want the truckers gone, but the truckers saying they're staying until all these restrictions are lifted. Uh, even though it's not Ottawa that is going to lift a lot of the restrictions that they're talking about. It's now gone beyond just the vet. Yes, exactly. And it's it's certainly gone beyond just the narrow issue of lifting the vaccine mandate for, for international. Uh, it's now they're targeting Jason Kenney. Will you lift, you know, let Alberta be free? And we're seeing that with the coots. I mean, that that is probably the scarier sort of uh, protest right now in terms of uh, um, uh, lawless activity. Um, so we're seeing uh, there's very much a sympathetic uh, group here when they're looking at what's happening in Coots, but also the folks here, you know, messaging Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, why aren't you lifting the restrictions, Doug, uh, and so on. So it's, it is a bit broader to all public health restrictions, federal and provincial. Okay, and so what about the politicians aspect of this, David? Then in the beginning, you saw some MPs out there meeting with them. What has happened in the days since? Well, I mean, the, the MPs really haven't changed. I mean, the big thing literally right now as we speak, I mean, I'm looking at my phone, um, MPs in the Conservative caucus are right now voting on Aaron O'Toole's future. Um, he There's 119 MPs in that caucus. He needs to have 60 say, uh, good. But if 60 vote against him, then he's out of a job. And, uh, the, the you know, we're, we're trying to do some head counts. And the people who want him out might have 63 votes. It's going to be close. And if that happens, he's out of a job immediately, and then caucus will immediately proceed to select an interim leader. It could be White Rock's Carrie Lynn Finley. Uh, You know, that's one of the names being put forward. If they need an interim leader, she may be ready to put her hand up. Um, And that, so we're going to find out this caucus meeting could wrap up in an hour. It could wrap up in two hours. Will it be O'Toole emerging as leader, or will it be Carrie Lynn Finley or some other interim leader fronting the conservative side at question period today? And one of the reasons O'Toole could be out of a job is precisely because of his uh, flip-flopped response to this protest. In fact, that that's the knock on O'Toole's critics. He flip-flopped from a hard-right, true-blue guy during the leadership race to a more moderate uh, uh, uh uh, conservative in the general election, flip-flopped on some other things in the meantime, and then in his final hours last night, if it is his final hours as leader last night, he was phoning around to MPs to get support, offering to change again with new policies, so one final sort of flip-flop hmm. um, from the guy who's being accused of too much flip-flopping. Well, David, it's certainly keeping all of you busy there, so good luck. Uh, we'll check back in with you in a couple days. Thanks for your time Thank this you. morning. Okay, Sammy, cheers. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's continue our great conversation that we've been having about board games. Yesterday, we spoke to someone who is a board game designer. I am fascinated by that. Just the idea that you can be so creative to come up with an entirely new game. Well, as part of that, I got an email about our next guest, actually. It's somebody who has done quite the pivot during the pandemic, and I'm going to let him explain it to us. Daryl Redland joins us now. He is now a cribbage board maker. Daryl, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for reaching out to us, Amy. I appreciate it. Well, Daryl, what did you do before the pandemic? 
Well, we are mainly in aerospace uh, from 2006 uh, till now. We've been producing uh, mainly new aircraft parts for Boeing and expanding the business that way. And as everyone knows, before the pandemic hit, uh, you know, aviation was going crazy. People were traveling and, and things were looking pretty bright for us. Um, and then, of course, COVID hit. And, you know, when you're a business owner, you try to prepare for, you know, things that might get in your way, a roadblock or whatever. But I never saw this one coming uh, like many others didn't. And it's difficult when your business essentially goes from full steam ahead to almost zero. Um, there was about a six month period there where we did virtually nothing. It was it was really, really tough. Yeah. Um, so, you know, over the last couple of years, you keep trying different things and reaching out to you know, your contact base and seeing what you can do. And, and we uh, pivoted slightly at the beginning to work with a firearms manufacturer in Alberta. And right when we started going, the law changed and that manufacturer essentially got put out of business. So we're like, okay, back to the drawing board. And uh, just, it's been on like that pretty much for the entire COVID time. Uh, we worked for some other local manufacturers here and there a little bit. Um, I mean, we're not really set up as a jobbing machine shop. We're set up right. as a production facility. So it's difficult. It's sort of like saying, well, I have a 45 foot tractor trailer and I'm going to become a courier and I'm going to do data deliveries. It's, you've kind of got too much infrastructure. It's, you know, it doesn't really make sense from a cost perspective. So um, my staff and I um, were sitting around the, the the shop trying to decide, well, what can we do with all of our equipment? I mean, you know, we have a lot of capacity and we have the ability to make a lot of different stuff. What can we do? And we just started brainstorming and two of my staff are avid crib players and it just sort of evolved from there, you know, like, well, let's see, let's make the best crib board we can. <laughs> Daryl, you know, I love that. It, you know, we kind of kept it simple, the, the classic look to it, three-lane board. Um, but it's very highly machined. It's very precise. It's finished very highly, and we use metal pegs. Um, so there's no more breaking off pegs and holes and things like that. Okay, no, Daryl, I love everything about this because you're right. A, a crib board is a very particular thing. In fact, I've got two of them, and neither one in my house is, is perfectly the right one, apparently, from when we play crib. Right, right. So what is it? And when, when the idea first came up, when one of your employees suggested this, like what went through your head? Did you think, well, I can't make crib boards for a living? It was sort of. I, I just thought to myself, man, has, has my life taken a lot of twists and turns? you know, uh, from automotive to aviation to crib boards. And, you know, we kind of joked about a little bit, but, you know, I started looking into it more and more and found out that there's literally tens of thousands of crib board clubs in North America. Uh, It's actually a pretty big industry. And I'm like, wow, I, you know, you never would have even thought about it. Um, The main issue though, is most of the boards are coming from Asia and most of them are either wood or plastic or, you know, 399 kind of thing. And we didn't want to do that. We thought, well, let's go the other way. And let's try to make something a little bit unique. There's almost no one that makes a full aluminum uh, crib board in any type of production capacity. So, and you engrave and it too. So I can put like, yeah. and I'm and I'm ordering one from you just so everybody knows because when I got the email from your wife yesterday, I was like, I have to have one of these, and I'm going to order yeah. one. And so I can put like the family name on there. Like you do some special stuff. Yeah, we have a CO2 laser that we can also do uh, laser marking and engraving on. So yeah, we can. Uh, put almost anything on it that will show up through the anodize. Um, and we anodize a variety of different colors and things to, to make it uh, customizable that way. The back of the board is also open. So we've had a few people that have asked, you know, to put, say, like a, uh, a poem on there or things like that. So we've already nice. done ones for retirement. Uh, we had a few, a, a business order, a bunch of them right at Christmas time um, to give away instead of, you know, the traditional, say, maybe bottle of alcohol or something. They gave the, this away to their, uh, some of their clients. Um, so it's kind of unique that way. 
It's um, very unique. But Daryl, so what has the response been like overall? How, how many curb boards are you making these days? Well, we made an initial run of 250 right for Christmas to try to get into Christmas. This this whole idea sort of manifested itself right kind of late November. And we thought, oh, man, we've only got maybe three or four weeks to get to Christmas. Can we do this? So we kind of were frantic about it. And as you get closer and closer to Christmas, it's more difficult to get things through finishing departments and things. Um, so we were able to finish just right at Christmas, essentially. And we sold about 30 boards pretty much right away. Um but in all things like right after Christmas, you kind of get this little bit of a, a lull. Um, and since we're a production machine shop, we're not social media experts. We're not web right. designers, you know, so those things are now coming into play because of course, in order to market the product that has to look correct on the web, which requires exactly. a lot of work with those types of people. So it's actually takes some time to get a, a, pro- a product. You know, the manufacturing of the product actually is fairly easy. It's now it's marketing and selling the products that it's, <laughs> Well, you know what? I, I do think you have something here because like I right away saw this and thought, well, this this is a great idea. You're right. Nobody does this. So how can we help here, Daryl? Tell everybody where they can find your product. Uh, right. Well, our, our product right now is on our website, KodiakCNC.com. So it's K-O-D-I-A-K-C-N-C.com. And there's a link right on there that says, you know, buy your curbboard here <laughs> and you bang on it and it'll bring you to the page that outlays how we make the product um what colors are available how to upload a jpeg or or your art file that you want to if you want to right. put that on there color you're going to pick etc your address and such i hope people really snap these things up there how are you feeling about this change are you going back to aerospace do you think at some point oh yeah i mean it's not something that we've given up on we've, we've got too much invested and and i have a a really great staff that's highly trained and and that's been one of the hard you know parts through covid is uh we did lose one staff member just recently we just couldn't carry on with you know with a staff of, of that many and and uh it's tough i stay in constant communication with him because he's highly trained and i don't want to lose him but i already have sort of lost him but he also likes working with us so he may come back but it really depends on the ramp out of, of right. aviation and it's it's um it's frustrating because as you see you know, the world look like it maybe is going to turn around and come back. And then all of a sudden, well, now we're going to extend this mandate this length of time, or we're going to change this rule or change that rule. And then people are like, well, should we go to, you know, Hawaii for a flight? Because we might have a problem getting back. So we'll hold off. And until people start to travel, airlines are not going to buy aircraft. And if airlines are not going to buy aircraft, our main customer who's Boeing, you know, is just going to be on a limited production schedule. So going to be a tough road yet and and uh like a lot of businesses you know you're you're staying you're surviving not by making money you're surviving by you know using up Just your surviving. capital that you yeah. yeah that you've that you saved or operating lines and and so it's Doing even when it recovers you're still gonna have a while yeah exactly well daryl listen i hope it works out for you keep in touch i'm definitely going to push your crib board so thanks so much for joining us on the show this morning i, I appreciate the call take care have a great day this is mornings with simi well, it's that time of year when we look ahead to spring and summer and we think about all the places that we want to go camping. And then we start to plan, well, how can we get a spot there? Because as we've talked about on the show in years past, the system to make a reservation for camping has been tough to navigate sometimes here in BC. Oh, endless stories from people about this. But all that is about to change, apparently. We're going to find out more details. Joining us now is George Heyman, BC's Minister for the Environment and Climate Change. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure, Simi. Good morning. Good morning. Now, I understand there's a whole new camping reservation system coming our way. 
There is a whole new camping reservation system launching on March 21st. Uh, we certainly heard, uh, you, you referred to some of this, we heard lots of frustration, lots of complaints, lots of things that we could do better uh, over the past couple of years. So over the past few months, we've uh, we've engaged with hundreds of campers and park operators from all over the province, surveys, interviews, and focus groups. And we ended up finding, first of all, a new proven provider for our, our site. And then we uh, designed a brand new site that we think will be easier to use, much more user-friendly and much more fair. And uh, we have a beta version of it up right now at beta.bcparks.ca. People are welcome to go and take a look around. And we're also taking feedback of people see things that we can make better between now and March 21st. We We have time to do it. You talked about the fairness part of it. I think that is that was huge, and I, ha- I continue to hear that from people about making sure things are fair. What are some of the things that are being done to kind of fix that balance? Well, we already took a, a number of measures to ensure that uh, that people weren't block booking or or kind of protecting a, a long weekend by by booking in advance and then canceling days uh, ahead and just keeping the long weekend. People can no longer do that. But I know one of the biggest sources of frustration for people is not everybody can plan long ahead. So we've instituted uh, two things. One of them we started last year, and that's a two-month rolling booking window. So um, people don't have to worry about, I may want to go camping in September, but I don't know my dates yet, and it'll all be gone. Uh, People will have up to two months before the date they're thinking of going to make the booking. And the other thing we're introducing is... uh, um, what's called a queuing functionality. So instead of the frustration people have had about uh, calling in, uh, being shut out or, or going online and, and being shut out, this will uh, be transparent and it will uh, take people in the order uh, they logged on and it, um, and it will uh, let them into the system when it's ready to take them. Another thing that we're doing is we're allowing people to uh, take uh, to establish user accounts with their with their preferences in advance of March 21st. So uh, a lot of the things that you would have to fill out online will already be done. It should make the whole process simpler and easier. Minister Heyman, this sounds like entering the 21st century. This is great. <laughs> well, um, we think it will work uh, a lot better. There's a number of other improvements we're planning to do. Uh, people will be able to search by date, by specific park, by region. Uh, as I said, they can enter their preferences. And uh, the way the system is built, we'll be able to uh, continually update it and improve it. We're not done yet. Uh, we're going to uh, allow people to explore the website starting March 14th, even though they won't be able to book till the 21st. And uh, that will give people uh, lots of opportunity to figure out how it works, uh, ask questions. We've also enhanced our call center. So for people who uh, can't uh, use the website for whatever reason or would prefer to call, we'll have uh, more capacity there as well. Now, you mentioned the idea of people like booking for a week and then just wanting the long weekend. Empty spots when people couldn't book them was really frustrating. How how will that be dealt with? Um, well, we um, there's always reasons people don't show up at the last minute. We've been working hard on uh, on finding ways to to make information about reservations that have been cancelled more readily available for for people's information. And I think uh, we've got to the point now where there's. Uh, we should be able to reload information on available campsites uh, within 24 hours of 
of a reservation being cancelled. But it's important to know that 45% of our campgrounds are still uh, fully first-come, first-serve, and there's lots of them. That's 45% of almost 11,000 campsites. Do we need more campsites, though? Because that's the other thing we've had the last couple of years, right, is increased demand. Absolutely. We've seen a 200% increase in demand in the last uh, decade, and certainly the last two years has been a a big chunk of that as people were looking, uh, what can we do in British Columbia, because uh, we're not traveling. And they've rediscovered British Columbia. We have uh, the largest infusion of both operating and a capital budget for BC Parks. We're in the second year of a, a three-year period. This is more money than parks have seen in well over a decade. We're, we're creating new campsites as quickly as we can, and we're going to continue to do that to meet the growing demand of British Columbians. Now, what are some areas that perhaps you have your eye on that you think, okay, we're definitely going to be adding campsites here? Well, we um, we know there's heavy, heavy use in the uh, in, uh, in, the, in Metro Vancouver, in the in the South Coast region, that's an area we're looking at. We added uh, about a hundred uh, campsites to Manning Park last year. Uh, there's also uh, areas in um, in the interior near the Okanagan that are popular. But we're we're in the process of developing and finalizing our plans, and then we'll let people know. Okay, so one, let's run through this one more time then in terms of the changes that are coming uh, to the camping reservation system. If, you've, if they, people thought they had been navigating it before, they're going to have to learn some new things coming up in the month of March. Well, they'll have to learn some new things, but it'll be far more intuitive. As I said, they can uh, take a look at it right now at beta.bcparks.ca. This is going to be a brand new site um, available through uh, through bcparks.ca. Uh, on March 1st, we're retiring the Discover Camping site, although it's still taking reservations for year-round parks up to then. Uh, and then from March 14th to 21st, uh, people can uh, go on, set up their accounts, try the site out. So uh, when it goes live for reservations on March 21st, they'll be able to go ahead. But I think the the important message I have for people here is this will be a, a much easier site to use. It's more user-friendly. It's got better search options, more information. We have uh, high-quality uh, photographs of campsites, uh, usually about uh, four or five per Per site, I think people are going to find this a major change and they're going to enjoy using it. Uh, not as much as they're going to enjoy camping, though. Okay, but if, you know, if it doesn't work, you're going to hear about it because <laughs> we're going uh, to hear about it too. We're going we're gonna to hear about it, but we have, uh, we have a high degree of, of uh, confidence. The, um, the, uh, the, the website uh, operator, um, Camus, is a Canadian company. They also do Parts Canada and they open reservations for uh, Parts Canada quite recently without a hitch. All right, we'll see how it goes. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Take care. You too. That's George Heyman, BC's Minister for the Environment and Climate Change. Okay, camping people, did you hear that? There's a whole new camping reservation system starting in the month of March. So go online now. If you're thinking, if you've booked campsites in the past and you know you're going to be doing it again, check out the beta that they've got going right now. It's beta.bcparks.ca. Get to know the system. As you heard the minister explain it there, you get to make an account. It'll remember you. (laughs) Where was all this stuff in years past, right? So it's going to be a very different system. And of course, we want to hear your experiences with it once that booking starts uh, officially on March the 21st. This is Mornings with Simi.
Boy, that one takes me back, right? I haven't heard that song in so long. All right, let's talk about the Olympics. They start on Friday. But you know what? A lot of people don't know that, or maybe you did, but you're not really going to be paying attention. This is a topic of the latest survey by Research Co. In fact, Raji Sohal joins us now to talk more about that. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, I've been guessing that people's interest in the Olympics this time around was lower, in great part because of China being the hosting country. But the poll results surprised me. Uh, About three in five Canadians think Canada should boycott the 2022 Winter Olympics over China's human rights record. That is the biggest concern there. Um, But that number is high. I was surprised. You know, Simi, when I first heard about Beijing's bid for the Olympics, I thought, okay, no way because of all the human rights abuses that we've been hearing of lately, especially, you know, the Uyghurs, the treatment of the the Tibetans uh, was uh, in the news so much more many years ago. And I just thought, no, it's not going to happen. And you look at the authoritarian treatment of journalists and anyone that speaks out, but the Olympics are big business. And the IOC's Dick Pound himself has said that they select a host country based upon their ability to host the sports involved. Uh, Of course, we're seeing the use of a lot of fake snow, not uh, the conditions, the ideal conditions for uh, winter sports, and not how they conduct their society. So they they went with China, but a lot of people are not happy about it. And I talked to Wei Tsui. He's a professor in the faculty of law at UBC, where he's also writing a book on the Chinese fiscal state. He said he's going to be watching the Olympics, but for several reasons. I'd love to see the achievements of Canadians because um, I'm an immigrant to this country. This is one way of learning about um, what Canadians are capable of. It's part of acculturation. And I hope there's no Chinese government propaganda that we have to subject subject ourselves to. And, um, you know, the value of protests in the Olympics, I think people are rightfully angry about all kinds of things the Chinese government has done. Um, the value of protest itself is, uh, I think it's valuable, but it is very dangerous. And uh, it introduces a lot of uncertainty into um, the next two weeks. Hmm, that is so interesting, though, because we don't know what's going to happen. Never mind COVID, no. right? Yes, Never mind exactly. COVID. There's all these other international issues. Yeah. And Simi, we are now in an era where people are interested in who athletes are, what they stand for. We don't think they're puppets. You know, we want to know what their opinions are from everyone to likes, if you know, Tom Brady to everyone that took a knee in solidarity in the NFL or tennis players who speak about um, their mental health issues. People want to know who their athletes are, what they stand for. And so uh, the research co-poll, they asked uh, the respondents questions around that. And across Canada, Simi, 72% of respondents believe athletes who wish to protest China's human rights record during the Beijing Olympics should be able to. The same proportion believe that the IOC shouldn't punish athletes who decide to speak out But again, in this era where people speak their mind more uh, and use social media, I wonder how that's going to play out with the Olympics. Here's Wei Sui again. If there are athletes going to China wanting to participate in the events, but want to speak up about their feelings, their beliefs about um, uh, human rights violations in China, and they feel threatened for doing anything like that, which is a threat that uh, they face, that's, that's highly problematic. Right. And so, so the, the athletes are in a, in a bad situation. People sympathize with that and, and see that, uh, say, the Chinese government shouldn't be threatening sanctions against people who want to speak up. 
Right. But I don't know if that's going to, what's going to happen to somebody who does want to speak up. We don't know, Simi. We also don't know the human cost to build the infrastructure that's going into the Olympics. We haven't seen um, any reporting on how these buildings are being made, if there's any kind of violation of, of labor of people there. Um, so we, I think there's still so much of this story that will unfold that might come to light and that we might have protest around it. We'll see. But here's Wei Sway again. You know, so this is a complicated organizational uh, endeavor uh, on the part of the Chinese government. There are potentially huge human costs. We don't know. And so any kind of reporting covering this could be showing what actually happens when you have this kind of government running this kind of show. There could be ugly um, sides. If those ugly sides eventuate and get uh, reported and then there's confrontation, what's going to happen, we don't know. So this is a risky state, uh, risky uh, prospect for everybody. If Canadian athletes protest simply against existing problems in China, uh, to what extent can the Canadian government protect them? Um, not very much, right? And so this is this is a difficult situation for people to go in having protest in mind. This is so interesting because what times have really changed. When you think back to 2008 when Beijing hosted yeah. the Summer Games, it was it was a celebration. It was China coming out to the world and being on display. Very different this time around. Yeah, I think also the treatment of the Uyghurs um, in the last several years, how much uh, has come out about that has been on people's radar more. Um, just yesterday, the BBC uh, published an article about how the FBI is urging temporary phones for Olympic athletes. They don't want them to bring their regular phones to the Olympics. Um, so I'm sure the athletes will be having a lot of uh, serious conversations um, with organizers in their various countries before going over. They'll have plans around this. I'm sure many athletes will be dissuaded from speaking out. Um, but inevitably, Simi, someone always does. However, I want to point out that because of COVID-19, interestingly, the opportunities for protest are already limited, right? The setup itself is going to make it less feasible for anyone to do something spontaneous. No um, crowds. So maybe, exactly. So athletes will probably just be focusing, I think, on the competition, the sport at hand and trying to stay safe and remain COVID-free for the competition. Oh, it's so interesting. And the phone thing is interesting too. And the reason why they're advising that is because they've made it mandatory that anybody participating in the Olympics has to download this app. And they say, oh, it's to organize like transportation and food and lodging. And just so you know everything that's going on, but it's a Chinese app, and so the other organizations, other countries are wary of what might what might do to your phone. Sure, and how much tracking is occurring? Exactly. There. Yeah. I mean, China operates by very very different sets of rules than we do here, than um, Americans would be used to, uh, that many countries would be used to. So they're treading into um, a territory. I feel. I mean, I feel for the athletes because they don't get to just go to these Olympics and focus on the sport. They have to be aware of COVID nineteen for sure. And then, yes, like you mentioned, uh, the app 
that uh, will be tracking every move and where they yes. are and what they're doing and and so much more. So there's just so much to be aware of, though. I will be watching all of it. I love watching the Olympic competitions. I love cheering for Canada. Um, and I also love all the side stories that come out of it. But uh, I'm being very, very, very interested to see in yeah. what comes about with protests around their human rights abuses. It will be. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. It's our Raji Sohal there. Great question this morning is, will you be paying attention? A lot of people are just kind of turned off by the whole idea and not watching the Olympics. It's certainly the impression I've gotten from people this morning.